Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the second week of our series, Beyond the Boat. This message comes from Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. You know, we're uh, in a uh, study in the book of Matthew. And so we're in the study really at a point where we're focusing on Matthew's chapter 14 and 15. And in, in uh, 15, we're going to look at next or last week or next week, chapter 14. And we have the story of Jesus, uh, Jesus calling Peter out of the boat. And, and in a lot of ways, that's symbolic of this whole section, that it's all about Jesus calling us beyond the boat to get out of our comfort zone and, and to follow him in ways that might seem to stretch us. And we're going to definitely see that here in this passage this morning. We're focusing on, J- on Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would ask you to open it up, to keep it open throughout our time. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. We'd encourage you to use that. And, uh, but you'll, it'll help you follow along with the message and the, all the points that come from God's word. Uh, but let me begin by reading that passage, Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from uh, there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is a desolate place, and and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to them, We only have five loaves here and, and two fish. And he said to them, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men beside the women and the children. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together this morning. Father, to be able to, again, worship you, to celebrate what you're doing. And Father, now to be able to dive into your word. I thank you for the truths that are here and how you, you teach me. And Father, I pray that you would now get me out of the way, that your spirit would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help us each one to have hearts that are open to what your spirit would have for us. Father, that we would not only understand, but understand how to apply and have the ability to embrace and to apply whatever lesson you may have for us this morning. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you who have been at the church for any length of time probably know that my all-time favorite movie is The Lord of the Rings. Um, You know, when you say, which one? Well, I count all three as one because they're all from one story and one book. And, and I love the, the movie, not only because it's a great story, you know, people would look at it and they say it's because of special effects. No, it's not about that. It's primarily because it's, it's a great story that's told with great Christian themes. The, the author, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, was best friends with C.S. Lewis. And it's not written like the Narnia Chronicles, which were all in allegory. But yet, even though it's not as clear, there are very clear Christian themes, biblical themes that are prevalent throughout the whole book and that come across in the movie as well. Uh, Obviously, you have issues like the battle of good and evil. You have the importance of community and fellowship. You you have the the story of the destructive power of sin are obvious themes. 
One of the ideas that runs throughout the whole book and throughout the movies is that there's a small group of people who have been entrusted with a great task, this battle against ultimate evil that seeks to destroy their world. And this group is called to fight against in, impossible odds, so much so that their quest is for all practical purposes hopeless. But yet they continue on because that's what they're called to do and they're hoping that that there's some miracle that will happen that will allow them to succeed. Now, it's an idea that runs throughout the whole story. And, uh, and let, but let me show you one scene from the first movie that shows this point. Some of you might even look at this and say, well, this seems kind of familiar. Actually, I did use this not that long ago, and usually I wouldn't use the same scene within a, you know, within a year. But, but I think this story and this one point illustrates it so well, I've decided to go ahead and use it again. The scene shows this high council of all the great leaders of Middle-earth, you know, you have the leaders of the men and the dwarves and the elves and, and wizards. And then you have one other person, this guy, Frodo Baggins. And Frodo is a hobbit. He's from this race of tiny people, tiny men, only about three feet tall. They have no special skill, no special ability. They're so insignificant that most of the people on Middle Earth don't even know they exist. And now the council has come together to decide how to destroy the great ring of power. And with this ring, the, you know, if he gets it, the evil lord will become pretty much invincible. And, and so it must be destroyed. But its only hope of destroying it is to actually go into his, his land, go into the heart of his territory, and bring it to this mountain where they, where they put it in the volcanic fires where it was made. And so that's the setting of the scene. Watch and see what happens. The ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we hear. Possess. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. I will take 
I will take the ring to Mordor. Man, I love that scene. I mean, here you have this impossible thing and you get this, this sense that this one guy is saying, you know, you don't understand. You know, even you can't breathe the air. Even if you had 10,000 people, you couldn't even dream of doing this. And, and out of that hopelessness, you see the incredible division and the, and the you know, the breakup of all the people. And, and, and then in the midst of that, you have this little hobbit, Frodo, who has no ability. He steps up and says, I'll do it. I'll take the ring but I'm so unqualified, I don't even know the way. I don't even know where I'm going. And, and I look at that and he said, do you ever think, you, know, you look at the world and you see all the problems that we face. We see we seemingly a spiritual and moral decline of our culture. And do you ever get discouraged? As a culture, we have not only turned our back on God's word, on God's truth, we've turned our back on the whole idea of truth. We live in a world where sin is celebrated, where people are persecuted for saying, quoting biblical teaching on moral issues. And if you ever look at that, I, you know, I can look at it and I can say, it's too big, it's beyond hope. We've gone so far down the wrong path. What hope do we have? And if there's any hope at all, what could I do? What difference can I make? You know, I'm just, I'm just like this little hobbit that's out there and I, I don't bring anything to the table. And you know, it's impossible odds. But now here's the good news is the fact is, yes, we are in a dark story, but we know the author of the story. We not only know the author, we know the ending of the story. And while that story may include times that seem as if things are impossible and hopeless, the incredible thing is, is that when you understand everything that the Bible teaches, it teaches that God will intentionally at times put us in situations that are seemingly hopeless for a reason. That's one of the ways that he seeks to accomplish his great purpose. That's part of what the, we're going to see here that is being taught in Matthew 14. But before we dive into this passage and this story, let me look a little bit at the context of the broader story. And one of the things that is important, and, and I think that as we study the Bible expositorily and we go through large sections of the Bible, one of the things is that it, it reminds us that, that we're not just looking at a different passage. You know, sometimes if you take a different topical passage every week, you miss the context. And, and, and we remember that this is always a part of a bigger book, a bigger story. And then what's being told builds on what has already been said. And so let's look at this context. You know, we saw in Matthew 14, 14, that Jesus saw this great crowd that had been following him, and it tells us that he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, I think it not only tells us of Jesus' compassion here, but it's worded in a such a way to remind us of an earlier passage that tells us not only of Jesus' compassion, but then how he spoke to, out of that compassion about our call. So we're told again that there was this large crowd following Jesus. He looked at them, he saw this compassion, and he uses almost the exact same wording as was used at the end of chapter nine. At the end of chapter nine, we're likewise told that Jesus was teaching and there was great crowds that began to follow him. And Jesus there, we're told, looked at the crowd and, and look what it says in 939. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Same terminology, same wording. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he has this compassion. And I think, again, Matthew's using the similar language, not only to help us to see the nature of Jesus' compassion, but to draw our mind and attention to how he acted on that compassion back in chapter nine. 
right after nine, after the expression of Jesus' compassion, and we're told that the compassion he had, he then turns to his disciples and says, now I'm entrusting you to go out and be my representatives to meet the spiritual needs of the people that, that I have compassion for. So the next verse, 937, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out labors into his harvest. And in case we miss what he's saying and think that, well, maybe he's talking about, well, pray that he would send someone else, he makes it really clear in the next verse. He says, he called to, uh, to him as 12 disciples and gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Saying, okay, now, no, just in case you're thinking that it's someone else, no, it's you. I want you to be the ones to go and to carry my message, to meet the people's practical needs and the spiritual needs. Now, if we go back to Matthew 14, what we're gonna see is that's pretty much exactly what Jesus does here as well. It's the same idea that he's, we hear of his compassion and then he looks to his disciples then, he looks to us, his modern day followers, and he says, okay, now they're hungry, you go feed them. You meet their needs. You be my representatives in the world. Now, some of us might be thinking right off the bat, <laughs> I'm not qualified. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have any special gifts or abilities. I, you know, I'm, I'm as qualified as a little hobbit. I mean, I can't, I can't storm the gates of Mordor. And, and we look at that and we say, not only that, you don't understand how negative the culture is, how, you know, people, if I, my friends, if I try to witness to them, they're going to have arguments. They're going to ask questions. I don't know how to answer that. You know, the crazy thing is that if you look at the context and the two stories right before this, they actually seem to affirm that objection. They seem to almost affirm that, yeah, it's, it's all but impossible. And uh, in fact, let's look at that. Let's, if you look at the end of chapter 13, we have a story about Jesus going back to this, his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth. And Nazareth was this tiny little town of a couple hundred people, and Jesus had become this well-known teacher that had been celebrated nationally. And you would think that the people of Nazareth would welcome him as this hometown hero, but they didn't. In verse 57, we're told that they were offended by his teaching. They rejected him. Well, then we go to the beginning of chapter 14, the first 12 verses we looked at last week, which is about John the Baptist. And here you have John the Baptist, who was the, the, you know, the prophet, that God had sent as a forerunner of Jesus. And here he, and what's his response? Well, he's arrested by Herod. He's not only uh, executed, but he's mocked in his death. So Herodias comes and has him beheaded and puts his head on a platter. Now, it would be easy to look at those stories and think, wait a second, if John the Baptist, the prophet of God, the forerunner of Jesus, went out and he didn't succeed, he was executed, he was mocked, and, and if you have Jesus himself goes in his hometown and he didn't succeed, he was rejected, how in the world am I supposed to succeed? How in the world am I supposed to reach my culture, my people? Well, that's a good question. And from a logical perspective, looking at things in the context of our ability, our wisdom, and the opponent opposition in the world around us, the answer is we have no hope. We do not have the ability. The call is completely beyond our ability. It's an impossible task. But what we're gonna see here in Matthew 14 is the same idea that I think Jesus taught in the end of Matthew 9, which Jesus calls us with this task of reaching the world. He calls us to do what is impossible by our strength alone. And then says, okay, 
but come and just be faithful. Bring the little tiny bit that you have. Bring your habitability, and I'm going to take that faithfulness, and I'm going to multiply it by my power so that through my power, working through your faithfulness, I will do the impossible. And understand what Jesus is calling us to. Let's look at this passage and see what, what it teaches about the need of the people. Now, Matthew 14, 14 tells us he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, he healed their sick. Um, and, and we've read a moment ago that we're gonna see that this then leads to this great miracle where he multiplies the bread and the fish, he feeds you know, 10,000 people. And, um, and in that, let me stop and go back and ask a question. What were the purposes of Jesus' miracles? Was it just, oh, here's a need, I'll meet that need? Well, there's a lot of, and you know, he didn't feed the people most of the time, and so, so it's not that. Was it just to demonstrate his power? I want to show that I'm the son of God. Well, if it was that, you know, when we think of our time and, and day, you know, people have all kinds of special effects because they want to show their power. Jesus could have done more amazing things. I mean, he could have been, hey, let me show the power. I'm going to call fire from heaven. You know, he could have said, hey, let's get everybody together. Watch this. I'm going to fly over the Sea of Galilee. That would have gotten a lot of attention. But he didn't do things like that. Now, what did he do? What was the purposes? The point of his miracles were not just to demonstrate the fact of his power, but his, was to teach us about the redemptive purpose of his power. All of his miracles that are recorded in the Bible teaches something about the spiritual nature of his ministry. So let's look at this miracle. What do we see? Well, first of all, we see, we see the problem. The problem is that there's a physical hunger of the people. They come, you know, we read in 1413, uh, Jesus heard this, he withdrew to a boat to a desolate place. You heard about the death of, of John the Baptist. He goes to be by himself, probably to pray, to just reflect, but the people don't let him be by himself. So we're told that, you know, they found out where he's going and, and the crowds heard about it. They followed him on foot to where he would go. And then when he lands ashore, he sees this great crowd. He has compassion on them and, uh, and his heart goes out. And then we read in verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages to buy food for themselves. And the important thing to remember is this is all happening in what is uh, defined here as a desolate place. It's a remote area. It's not close to cities or towns where people were able to go buy food and bread to have for dinner. And so the disciples are, are know that. And they notice it's getting late in the day. People are captivated by Jesus and his teaching, his miracles. No one's leaving. And so they see this challenge and they say, okay, Jesus, we want you to be aware of it. You know, there's a real need. 10,000 people are here. They're not going to be able to find food if they don't leave right away. I always find it interesting that they felt it necessary to point this out to Jesus like Jesus wasn't aware of it. And, um, and, and I think I can do the same thing. I can at times say, Jesus, here's a problem. You know, you may not be aware of it. And just a little side note, I, I think that he's always aware of those needs. But what we see at this story is in this miracle of Jesus feeding the, the crowd is that again, it's not just a demonstration of a physical need, but it's also teaching something about a spiritual need. The physical hunger of the crowd was a picture, was an illustration of their greater spiritual hunger. See, this is an idea that's made extremely clear in the Gospel of John, and it's telling of the same miracle. In John chapter 6, we have the same miracle being recorded, and yet right after the feeding of these, you know, multiplication and feeding of the 5,000 men, 10,000 people, 
Uh, Jesus then teaches that, okay, no, this is a spiritual illustration, that our, that our souls are defined by a spiritual hunger, and he's the only one that could come and satisfy that hunger, provide the nutrients that we need for us to be healthy spiritually. Look at what Jesus teaches about this in Matthew or in John 6, shortly after the, the story. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives it to you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, I'm the real picture. This is just, this is a, a picture of the real bread that now God is giving. And uh, he continues in, in verse uh, 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. You know, that was temporary. This is the bread, the ultimate bread that's gonna fill the ultimate eternal need. Continues in the next verse. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that, will, uh, that I will give uh, for the life of those, the world is my flesh. I am that bread. He's saying you have a hunger that is deeper than any physical hunger. You have a hunger that physical bread can't satisfy. And if you don't get that emptiness filled by me, you're going to be starving forever. And again, so remember that this is all about the spiritual hunger of the crowd. And so when you look at this, we've got to say, okay, Jesus is not just teaching us, okay, when he looks at us and he says, okay, as his followers, he tells them, now you feed them. It's him telling us now as his followers today that no, there's a spiritual need and we're called to meet that need. And he gives us an impossible call, an impossible solution to the problem. Again, now remember that it tells us that there are 5,000 men. There's probably, it says at the end, with, that doesn't include the women and children. So, you know, maybe 10,000 people who've come to hear Jesus. It's late in the day. They're in this remote place where they're, you know, they can't find food to eat. There's a very practical need. And the disciples, again, come to him. They make him aware. Verse 15, when it was evening, they came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages to buy food for themselves. I mean, I think about how many of you all been to a, like a conference, a large conference? And, and if you have, you know, usually they'll have a schedule and, and then they'll have a break in there for lunch or for dinner. And, and oftentimes it will read, it will read, you know, lunch on your own. You know, basically here's a break, you know, go find a restaurant, go, you know, go get lunch on your own, then come back. We start here at again, it's, you know, at three o'clock or whatever time. And I think the disciples were looking at this and they said, you know, Jesus, that's the agenda. You know, you know we've, got, we've got a break, it's time to break, tell people it's time for lunch on their own. Let's send them out. You know, if we don't send them out, they're not gonna be, all the restaurants, all the stores, they're closing. And he responds to that practical select suggestion with a totally irrational, seemingly, suggestion. Verse 16, he said, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. And I think they, and Jesus, and they're like, well, what, you know, that's not possible. And Jesus, look at all these people. And they, they respond to Jesus in verse 17. We only have five loaves here and two fish. And their tone of their answer is actually frustration. It could be translated, we don't have anything here except these five loaves and two fish. And actually, the situation was even worse than what you might imagine. You see, when we often think of this picture and we think of like five loaves of bread, you know, we think of like loaves like this. You know, this is what we think of a loaf of bread. And we might say, okay, well, you know, it's not gonna feed, five of these aren't gonna feed 10,000 people, but, but it's gonna feed several people. One of these is gonna feed several people. And, and so you're starting with a big amount. 
But the word that's used to describe there really doesn't talk about loaf. It's more like a, a pita, probably a smaller than this, a little pita bread. And, and um, you know, so when you look at this, all they had is they had these, you know, five small pitas and two f small fish. And you're saying, okay, well, we can feed some here, but when you think about these, I mean, this is basically like one person's lunch. And you're, you're sitting there saying, we've got 10,000 people and you want us to, that's all we have. So what do we read? Verse 19, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. He takes them, he thanks God for the provision. He breaks them into probably you know, edible size. He puts them into these baskets and has the disciples start to distribute them. Now, my wife, Sandy, when she says this, she, the scene, she, she, she says, I always think of Blossom Music Center. You know, it, it's like this huge hill that's out there and you have all these people that are, that are sitting there on the grass that are watch, listening to Jesus as he's speaking. And, um, and actually, that's a, a better illustration than I realized. I looked it up and I found that the maximum seating capacity on the lawn is 13,000 people. And so if you have blossom that's full like this, not all to the way to the edges, but it's full, that's probably about 10,000 people. All right now think about this. If you think about these 10,000 people, could you imagine saying, okay, I've got these five pitas, and Jesus says, okay, take these and feed all of them. I mean, that's an overwhelming, they'd be like, what Jesus? I mean, it's kind, that's kind of crazy, that's overwhelming, that doesn't, doesn't make sense, that's not possible. But what happens? is that he breaks this, he gives it to them, and we read in verse 20, 21, they all ate, were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men beside the women and children. They, all, they didn't all just had a bite, they ate and were satisfied. And not only that, they took up 12 baskets of leftovers, they, they had way more leftover than they started with. And so you, what you, we see here is a spiritual lesson. Again, this, this physical is a picture of the spiritual need that Jesus is the bread of life, and, and as followers of Christ, we are now called to bring that bread of Christ to a world that is lost and hungry. And as we interact with a, a, a world that is lost and his, his spiritual need is desperate, you know, our response can, to this call can be like, are you kidding, Jesus? Again, I'm just like, I'm little hobbit. I'm not equipped to storm the goats and Mordor. You know, I, I don't, do you understand the scope of the need? You're calling me to, to, to feed that number of people with my lunch. That's just not possible. And so what are our possible responses to Jesus' call? You see, we can look at the lostness of the world and, and, and we can, the desperate need, and we can see Jesus, um, you know, and we can say, well, Jesus, just send them away. And Jesus says, no, they don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. Now, the first thing we can do is we can try to avoid this call because it seems impossible. You know, I think this is the response that we see in the disciples. They're saying to Jesus, no, just send him away. Jesus, we don't want to deal with this. This is something that we can't do. And, and a lot of times we can, we can talk the talk, but we could say, practically, I'm not going to engage. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to answer the questions of my unbelieving friends. Um, I think even as a church, I, you know, I think one of the great examples of this is what we can do is I think of the little nursery rhyme by Mother Goose, Little Bo Peep. And, and it says what we can often do. Little Bo Peep lost her sheep and, and uh, doesn't know where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. And a lot of times that's what churches can do. That's what we can do. I'll share the gospel. You know, if somebody comes and asks me, but, but they're lost and I don't know where to find them. And so I'm going to leave them alone and I'm just going to wait. And, and if, if I have an unbeliever come and ask me, well, then I'll tell them. 
Well, no, the, fa- the fact is the Bible calls us, doesn't, this isn't a biblical model. The biblical model is that Jesus is the good shepherd and he calls us to be like him who goes out into the world and finds the lost that interacts with our unbelieving friends and bringing them to Christ. We can't just ignore it because it seems impossible. No, he calls us to, to embrace it. Now, another danger is that we can try to redefine the call to make it more possible. And uh, so in practical terms, it's kind of like we, we take it and we say, okay, well, Jesus, you want me to feed? Well, how do I, if I break it in t- small enough pieces, you know, if I, I mean, how many pieces can I give so that everybody can get a little bite? You know, because, because what I want to do, you know, the, the call is not necessarily, he can't mean what he really said. So I'm trying to divide it so everybody, if they can maybe get a communion-sized piece. And uh, now I can maybe do that with these five things to feed 500 people that are here, but not 10,000 people. See, it's totally impossible. You know what I see at churches and unbelievers or, or believers doing that today is that sometimes we try to say, well, I know that God calls us to do that. We try to redefine it. And well, it's a culture, but we don't want to offend people. We want to make it, we don't want to preach the Bible because if we really preach the Bible and about sin, that's going to offend people and they're not going to believe. So so here, let us make it less offendable. Let's make it simpler. Let's make it practical. Let's make it relevant. Let's not offend people. And so we look at our limits. And the fact is, is that we try to make it easier for people to believe. And the fact of the matter is we're compromising. We're not giving them the bread of life. We're giving them something a lot less. We're giving them what we have because we don't believe in God to do the miracle. Well, see, the third option is that we can embrace the call. We can believe Jesus, accept the call, and move forward. But it isn't possible. So how do we do that? We do it by, by making our focus faith in Jesus. The fact of the matter is that if I make my focus the world out there and the opposition and the you know, you know, persecution and the closeness of my friends, I will get discouraged and I will not do it. If I make my focus my ability, I will get discouraged and I will not do it. I'm just the hobbit. There's no way I can do that. But if I realize that God calls me to do it and he calls me to make my focus not them, not me, but God, I realize that greater is he that is in me than is he that is in the world. That God plus one is always a majority. And in fact, it doesn't matter how much or how little I bring. If all I bring is a couple of pita bread, that's more than enough because God plus whatever is always, no matter how inadequate we have of what we have to bring, the fact of the matter is he calls us to do the impossible. He says, you go and give them something to eat. And we say it's impossible. And he says, okay, now you got it. Because if you understand that, the fact of the matter is, then you will understand that you will rely upon my strength. I mean, I think about even the way that Jesus does this miracle. He, you know, he could have said, you know, you've, you know, let's feed him. And he could have done like the Harry Potter thing and just waved his hand and suddenly food appears. But he doesn't do that. He works with the food that they had. He doesn't make it out of nowhere, but he said, okay, what do you have? That's a little bit what you have. Now go out and take the inadequate part that you have. You go do your part and, 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 and then I'll bless it. And that's what God calls us to. You see, that's where we go back to Matthew 9. Pray to the word of the harvest that he will send. But I don't have, I'm just the hobbit. I don't have what it takes. Yeah, go out there. Be faithful to the call and I'll take what little bit you have and I'll do the miracle. I will use your faithfulness. Now, what is it teaching here? It's teaching that we need to discover God's power and we discover it in the impossible. See, what if God called us only to do the things that were within our ability? 
or we believe that we're in our ability. If God called me to do the things that I had the ability to do, I would do it in my ability. I would become, I would become very prideful, self-reliant. Um, I would sit there and, you know, I would, it would be my strength. And so what God does is he, he in a sense, he, he says, you, to understand this, you need the impossible to, to understand your dependence. I'm going to intentionally put you in situations that you are overwhelmed. Only in our weakness do we discover our strength. It's not until we're put into the impossible situation that we are forced to look to God. Only then are we forced to look to a strength and a blessing outside of ourselves. God will intentionally put us in places that are beyond our resources. That's again what I love about, you know, even the Lord of the Rings story. There it's overwhelming, it's hopeless. And that God says, okay, now that you understand that, trust in me. I can never feed 10,000 people. Okay, now that you understand that, and then take what little bit you have and rely on me, I will do it. I love how Corinthians talks about this in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 9. For my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, once we understand that, we will understand that he calls us, and faithfulness is just simply bringing what we have. As adequate as it is, it's bringing just our five loaves and two fish, just bringing our, our faithfulness. See, even, let's take evangelism. You know what's amazing to me? Is there's a lot of studies that show this. You know who the most effective people and evangelists tend to be? Brand new believers who don't know anything about the gospel. You know, they don't, they don't, they can't answer any of the questions. They, all they know is, hey, my life has changed. You know, I was blind, but now I see. Come see Jesus. And they're the most effective evangelists. And then as we tend to grow older in our faith, we start to say, but I don't know all the answers. I don't, questions, I can, you know, what if they ask me this question and what if they reject me? And, and, and here you have these people who know nothing and they just say, I just have, you know, I don't even have five loaves. I just have one loaf, and, but I'm out there and I'm letting God use me. And then over time, as we start to get more and more, we start to rely more on our ability. And the fact of the matter is God uses what little bit we have. He, faithfulness is just bringing what we have and say, okay, God, I'm gonna go out there and I'm totally ill-equipped and I know that, but I wanna represent you in believing that you're gonna, you're gonna bless that. You see, we can, on the one hand, we can try to be self-sufficient. We can try to, I'm gonna do it on my own strength, but we can become passive and surrender and we say, I think that's a, a common problem. You know, that when we look at this and we say, okay, God, it's overwhelming. I'm just going to sit back and you do the miracle. You do the revival. I'm, you know, I'll just sit there and watch and I'll cheer you when you do it. Again, think about this miracle. Jesus could have just done the made bread out of nothing. He could have stirred the stones into bread. He could have done any of that. But what does he do? He looks to his disciples and say, you feed them. What do you have? And they're like, well, we don't have anything except, you know, this, these five fish. And, and he said, okay, well, then take that. I will use what you bring, your faithfulness, and, and, and out of these five little pita and these two little fish, I will multiply it, and that's how I will do the miracle. And I think even in the disciples, when they came to him and they've got all these people, what do you have? I think they almost had to feel stupid by saying, Jesus, we just have this little lunchbox. We just have a couple pitas here. And Jesus says, okay, that's good. You know, it, the fact of the matter is, is that you bring what little bit, but you have the responsibility of bringing that little bit. See, there may be many of us that we're facing again with seemingly impossible situations. You might be in a marriage and say, man, I, this marriage is beyond hope. I don't see it. Well, God can heal it, but you got to bring your part. You got to go to marriage counseling. You know, you, your kids and God, I'm totally out of control. I have no idea. You got to do your part and you know, go to a parenting class. Uh, you've got to bring your kids to church. You've got to invest in them so that you're investing in them spiritually. 
that's your part that you need to do. Um, you know, you might look at that and you say, well, there's finances and man, it's overwhelming and I need a miracle. Maybe it's, maybe he's going to provide through the lottery. No, no, he's not going to provide through the lottery. I mean, you know, and God is doing miracles, but you need to go to a financial peace university or something like that. You need to do your part and God will do the miracle. Or with evangelism, you know, that's again, the main focus here. You might think I don't have what it takes. And you know what? You don't, and neither do I. But the fact of the matter is if you understand that, you understand how God works. Because if you think that you have what it takes, you will go do it by your strength. If you know that you don't have what it takes, you're saying, okay, God, I'm just gonna bring my little five loaves and two fish. And God, I need you to do the miracle. And what's amazing is that God does it. Why? Because we find our weak, and our weakness, we find God's strength. I know I will even talk to people and say, but God could never use me, and you don't know my background, you don't know my failures, you don't know my weaknesses, you don't know. Um, again, God uses us not because who we are, it's all about grace. And when we say that, that's not a statement of humility, that's actually a statement of tremendous pride. You know why? Because what we're saying is we're saying, no, you, you don't understand, in this thing, it's me plus God, but I am, I'm such a negative that, that God's not enough. The, 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 key, the key person in this combination here is still me. And because there's me in it, then God gets lost in me. God can't use me. And what we need to realize is true humility means that we come to God and we say, okay, God, in true humility, I realize I bring nothing. I just bring, I'm just a little hobbit. I'm just, I'm just bringing the, the, the couple pitas. I bring almost nothing, but I just bring my little tiny bit and the incredible thing is that you can take a couple of pitas and you could feed 10,000 people. You can take a hobbit and you can conquer, you know, the, the, the evil one. That God, you call me to literally now storm the gates of hell, not because of who I am, but because of who I represent, because of who you are. Because when I come out of faithfulness, God plus one is always a majority. Greater is he that is in me that is he that is in the world as we said before, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's the truth of God's call. So just in closing, let me just ask this closing challenge. Will you accept Jesus' call to bring spiritual food to a hungry world? Because that's really what this is about. This is him speaking to his followers. Now, there might be some, if you're not a follower, that's where I want to come back to you and say, he is the spiritual food you need. And if you've never trusted in him for your salvation, if, you, if you're looking for all these different things, he's not there to help. He's not there just to give you a little bit more of what the world offers. No, he is the spiritual food. So let me encourage you to come to him and to trust in him, to find your sustenance in him. For those that have it, you, you know, we've got to realize that God has called us. We live in a world that can be incredibly discouraging, incredibly depressive, and it, it's, it is far greater than what we have the ability to face. We agree that but we live in a story where I know the author and I know the end. And I not only know the author and I know the end, I know the means that he uses. And the means that he uses are totally ill-equipped. You know, he uses the little hobbits of the world. Uh, he uses the people that just have a couple pitas. And he says, okay, now if you're gonna be faithful, come and get out of the way. You know, pray for, you know, I talked with somebody even this past, past week. Says, I started praying that God would give me a chance to share my faith. And it's amazing. People are now coming to me and asking. It's amazing how that works. Pray. Pray for, pray for a couple of weeks. Say, I'm going to pray every day that God gives me a chance to share my faith. 
and then tell me what happens, all right? Um, God will answer that prayer. Are you willing to accept his call to bring spiritual food to a hungry world? And recognizing it's not, it's not the, the thing that should define you is not your, your, you know, the opposition and how, how terrifying it is. It shouldn't be your limitations and what you don't know. It's the little bit that you bring and the all-powerful God that takes that little bit and multiplies it for his good purposes. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.